Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written on Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey, and would preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel of Mark, which we now begin, is in some respects unlike the other three Gospels. It tells us nothing about the birth and early life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It contains comparatively few of his sayings and discourses. Of all the four inspired histories of our Lord's earthly ministry, this is by far the shortest. But, We must not allow these particularities to make us undervalue Mark's gospel. It is a gospel singularly full of precious facts about the Lord Jesus, narrated in a simple, terse, pithy, and condensed style. If it tells us few of our Lord's sayings, it is eminently rich in his catalog of his doings. It often contains minute historical detail of deep interest, which are wholly omitted, in Matthew, Luke, and John. In short, it is no mere abridged copy of Matthew, as some have rashly asserted, but the independent narrative and an independent witness who is inspired to write a history of our Lord's works rather than his words. Let us read it with holy reverence. Like all the rest of Scripture, every word of Mark is given by inspiration of God, and every word is profitable. Let us observe in these verses what a full declaration we have of the dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ's person. The very first sentence speaks of him as the Son of God. These words, the Son of God, conveyed far more to Jewish minds than they do to ours. They were nothing less than an assertion of our Lord's divinity. They were a declaration that Jesus was himself very God, and equal with God, John 5.18. There is a beautiful fitness in placing this truth in the very beginning of a gospel. The divinity of Christ is the citadel and keep of Christianity. Here lies the infinite value of the atoning sacrifice he made upon the cross. Here lies the particular merit of his atoning death for sinners. That death was not the death of a mere man like ourselves, but of one who is over all God-blessed forever, 
Romans 9.5. We need not wonder that the sufferings of one person were a sufficient propitiation for the sins of the world when we remember that he who suffered was the Son of God. Let believers cling to this doctrine with jealous watchfulness. With it, they stand upon a rock. Without it, they have nothing solid beneath their feet. Our hearts are weak. Our sins are many. We need a Redeemer who is able to save to the uttermost and deliver from the wrath to come. We have such a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. Isaiah 9.6 Let us observe in the second place how the beginning of the gospel was a fulfillment of Scripture. John the Baptist began his ministry as it is written in the prophets. There was nothing unforeseen or suddenly contrived in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. In the very beginning of Genesis, we find it predicted that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. All through the Old Testament, we find the same event foretold with consistently increasing clearness. It was a promise, often renewed to patriarchs and repeated by prophets, that a deliverer and redeemer should come one day. His birth, his character, his life, his death, his resurrection, his forerunner were all prophesied of long before he came. Redemption was worked out and accomplished in every step, just as it is written. We should always read the Old Testament with a desire to find something in it of Jesus Christ. We study this portion of the Bible with little profit if we can see in it nothing but Moses and David and Samuel and the prophets. Let us search the books of the Old Testament more closely. It was said by him whose words can never pass away, These are the scriptures that testify about me, John 5.39. Let us observe in the third place how great were the effects which the ministry of John the Baptist produced for a time on the Jewish nation. We are told that people from Jerusalem and from all over Judea traveled out into the wilderness to hear and see John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. The fact here recorded is one that is much overlooked. We are apt to lose sight of him who went before the face of our Lord and to see nothing but the Lord himself. We forget the morning star in the full blaze of the sun. And yet it is clear that John's preaching arrested the attention of the whole Jewish people and created an excitement over all Palestine. It aroused the nation from its slumbers and prepared it for the ministry of our Lord when he appeared. Jesus himself says, He was a burning and a shining light. You were willing to rejoice for a season in his light. John 5.35 We ought to remark here of how little dependence is to be placed on what is called popularity. If ever there was one who was a popular minister for a season, John the Baptist was that man. Yet of all the crowds who came to his baptism and heard his preaching, how few it may be feared were converted. Some, we may hope, like Andrew, were guided by John to Christ, but the vast majority, in all probability, died in their sin. Let us remember this whenever we see a crowded church. A great congregation, no doubt, is a pleasing sight, but the thought should often come across our minds, how many of these people will reach heaven at last?
It is not enough to hear and admire popular preachers. It is no proof of our conversion that we always worship in a place where there is a crowd. Let us take care that we hear the voice of Christ himself and follow him. Let us observe in the last place what clear doctrine characterized John the Baptist's preaching. He exalted Christ. There comes one mightier than I after me. And he spoke plainly of the Holy Spirit. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These truths had never been so plainly proclaimed before by mortal man. More important truths than these are not to be found in the whole system of Christianity at this day. The principal work of every faithful minister of the gospel is to set the Lord Jesus fully before his people and to show them his fullness and his power to save. The next great work he has to do is to set before them the work of the Holy Spirit and the need of being born again and inwardly baptized by his grace. These two mighty truths appear to have been frequently on the lips of John the Baptist. It would be well for the church and the world if there were more ministers like him. Let us ask ourselves as we leave this passage, how much we know by practical experience of the truth which John preached. What do we think of Christ? Have we felt our need for him and fled to him for peace? Is he king of our hearts and all things to our souls? What do we think of the Holy Spirit? Has he wrought a saving work in our hearts? Has he renewed and changed them? Has he made us partakers of the divine nature? Life and death depend on our answer to these questions. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Romans 8 verse 9. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today. May the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for his glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? Do you cling with careful watchfulness to the truth that the one who died for you is none other than God himself in the flesh? Do you believe he's able to save to the uttermost? Do you read the Old Testament with an eye on Jesus Christ? Are you taking care to hear the voice of Christ and follow him? Or do you find confidence in other things like the size of the crowd at church? Have you felt your need for Christ and fled to him for peace? And has the Holy Spirit renewed and changed your heart?